Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I'm Kion Wolf, and this is an extended version of my conversation with David White on the most recent episode of Audacious. We talked about the definition of forgiveness and pondered how it seems like every person has their own interpretation of it. Turns out how we define it often defines us. David wrote about this word in his book, Consolations, the solace, nourishment, and underlying meaning of everyday words. Here he is reading that passage. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a heartache and difficult to achieve because, strangely, it not only refuses to eliminate the original wound, but actually draws us closer to its source. To approach forgiveness is to close in on the nature of the hurt itself. The only remedy being, as we approach its raw center, to reimagine our relationship to it. It may be that the part of us that was struck and hurt can never forgive. That remarkably, forgiveness never arises from the part of us that was actually wounded. The wounded self may be the part of us incapable of forgetting, and perhaps not actually meant to forget, as if like the foundational dynamics of the physiological immune system, our psychological defenses must remember and organize against any future attacks. After all, the identity of the one who must forgive is actually founded on the very fact of having been wounded. Stranger still, it is that wounded, branded, unforgetting part of us that eventually makes forgiveness an act of compassion rather than one of simple forgetting. To forgive is to assume a larger identity than the person who was first hurt. To mature and bring to fruition an identity that can put its arm not only around the afflicted one within, but also around the memories seared within us by the original blow. And through a kind of psychological virtuosity, extend our understanding to one who first delivered it. Forgiveness is a skill a way of preserving clarity, sanity, and generosity in an individual life, a beautiful question, and a way of shaping the mind to a future we want for ourselves, an admittance that if forgiveness comes through understanding, and if understanding is just a matter of time and application, then we might as well begin forgiving right at the beginning of any drama, rather than put ourselves through the full cycle of festering incapacitation reluctant healing, and eventual blessing. To forgive is to put oneself in a larger gravitational field of experience than the one that first seemed to hurt us. We reimagine ourselves in the light of our maturity, and we reimagine the past in the light of our new identity. We allow ourselves to be gifted by a story larger than the story that first hurt us and left us bereft. The great mercy is that the sincere act of trying to forgive, even if it is not entirely successful, is a form of blessing 
and forgiveness in and of itself. At the end of life, the wish to be forgiven is ultimately the chief desire of almost every human being. In refusing to wait, in extending forgiveness to others now, we begin the long journey of becoming the person who will be large enough, able enough, and generous enough to receive at the very end that absolution ourselves. Thank you. So how good are you at taking your own advice? Well, I'd say the record is quite spotty. (laughs) 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 I'm I'm sometimes uh, I'm sometimes uh, better uh, in certain contexts than others. But I do believe I have learned through the years to begin the process much earlier than I allowed myself previously. And that essay is a testament to that understanding, to start to work along the axis of understanding. You can see actually how extraordinary Zelensky is, is understanding the need to fight in the moment, tooth and nail against the non-conversational powers in the world, while setting a context for forgiveness. He set up a whole apparatus to be in touch with Russian soldiers' mothers who were blindsided into the Ukraine. He set up by his speaking in Russian directly to Russians and understanding that they they can share a future together. And uh, he touches a nerve in the Russian psyche. You're seeing massive resignations now in in Russian uh, journalism and the television stations, uh, people are beginning to understand you know, that something has occurred which is deeply and utterly disturbing and which they deserve to be ashamed of. I always think forgiveness occurs when you change. You, know, you can't ask forgive for forgiveness if you haven't changed the behavior or become a different person than the person who perpetrated the hurt in the first place. All of us have hurt other people in our lives, unbeknowingly or sometimes quite knowingly, and and taken a great deal of satisfaction out of it at times. You forgive yourself when you stop being that person who needs to do that in that particular context. And you allow the world to forgive you by letting them know that you understand that. You know, if you'd have lived, uh, if you'd been alive in Europe in 1946, just after the end of the Second World War, there would have been very few people who, who would have said it would be possible to forgive the Germans yeah, and the German people. And, but the Germans have changed and they've created quite a remarkable and generous uh, society. Everyone now recognizes that. And forgiving Germany is almost becoming a non-question, especially with their their alignment, you know, against the uh, awful overreaching power of the Kremlin at the moment. So, uh, so will, the great question in forgiveness is uh, almost below: Will you forgive yourself? Is will you change first? Yeah. And will, if you need to forgive someone else, have they changed? You know. Now, there's always the, and I'll stop talking in a second to give you a chance, <laughs> but, uh, 
but uh, <clears throat> there's always um, the point comes where the other person or the other entity or the other country refuses to change. And you find that you're being held hostage and held in your own form of imprisonment by your refusal to move on yourself and to create a greater context. Yeah. So forgiveness might not look like my putting my arm uh, lovingly around what who had formerly been my en enemy. It may look like just creating a much larger context in which to understand them. One definition that I've been working with in um, as someone who was recently done terribly wrong is that forgiveness is when you realize that there's nothing to forgive them for, that what this offense did to you or what you made out of it has you ahead in the game, has you better than you were had they not done it. And I'd like your reaction to that idea. Well, it's a very ancient understanding. Uh, in the Zen tradition, there's the phrase, my greatest enemy is my greatest friend. It's the person who lets you know that whatever context you'd arranged for yourself, uh, it was based on an untrue foundation. Now, whether in the moment you're able to do that, when the blow is first delivered to you, uh, is a question of your own uh, spiritual maturity. Not all of us are uh, are Zen masters, yeah. Not quite yet, no. And so there's always a context of time to forgiveness, of my giving myself time. You know, what a sense of detesting the other person or hating the other person stops is my investigation of my own grief at at a conversation which was precious to me suddenly being stopped. And so you're short-circuiting this, this necessary exploration of the way you've been wounded. And you, ref, you know, by hating the other person, you're, it's, a natural, it's a natural outcome. You can't expect people who are being bombed in hospitals and theatres in Kiev to be in a place of forgiveness to the person who's doing it, yeah, or the people who are doing it. You can expect good leaders to set a context for future understanding of where this is emanating from. And all of us have, have an inner equivalent of the Kremlin. All of our great, you know, it's the non-conversational part of ourselves, the way you'll manipulate and even assassinate others metaphorically or, or literally in order for you to have your uh, view of the world not only promulgated, but lived by, by other people. Yeah. It's a human difficulty. You know, we, almost had, we, we almost had our own mini Putin in the White House. You know? And uh, you could be assured that if Trump had managed to stay in, and uh, if he'd also managed to whip people up to actually uh, suspend uh, the rule about uh, only there being two terms, that we would have bodies, you know. Uh, we had our own evil twin of Putin, except he was a proto-Putin. You just need to give him time. And he has the same use of language, you know, the euphemism 
that you use, you know, where you never, you get other people to do things, but you never directly are the author of the evil. Yeah. So Putin has never directly poisoned anyone, but he he's able to create a euphemistic language where uh, where people will be poisoned, you know, by his security services. You know. And on a lesser scale, you know, we 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 have to see the whole that same dynamic in in every human heart. You know. The way we will poison situations in order to keep ourselves safe or our view of the world. Um, there's no equivalence between Putin and and uh, the average the average everyday life at the moment. Uh, but there are lessons to be learned about the way that one person who's inner edge, which has been unconfronted and removed from conversation, can destroy other people's lives. So Putin's difficulty is nothing if he was in a if he was in held to a real conversation with others. Yeah. When you create an atmosphere of fear, then you get the consequences of one person's inner unexplored edge cutting through other people's lives in a very devastating way. We talk about time and how time seems to be this ingredient that we can't get around when it comes to forgiveness. And I think about all the time in between when you first wrote this poem for your book, Consolations, and maybe how many times you've read it as well. And I wonder if, I know you wrote it, but do you ever hear something new in it? Does something ever finally sink in for you? Well, you know, I hear something new every time in that essay because um, it's something that I, I've, I often say um, that poetry is the art of overhearing yourself say things you didn't know you knew and quite often didn't want to know, thank you very much, because you were quite happy uh, in your immature, unknowing identity. <laughs> thank you very much. So when you write something, you're held to it. You know, it's um, part of the difficulty in writing poetry to begin with is that you think that you're going to you're going to find this place inside you that's going to have all of this incredible language. But no, you're you're going to uh, find an edge of yourself with the larger world, yeah, and your identity will not survive the encounter. And it's in the language that you speak in that overwhelmed conversation that you write good poetry or good prose. And so you overhear yourself saying things you have to live up to and be held by. And hopefully the, the more you do this, the more you stay with what you've written. And we talk about time, you know, but if you look in the Zen tradition, it's understood that if you're able to step into timelessness, you can shorten this this what looks like time on the outside to the almost immediate. When you're sat in Zen sitting, there's a, an understanding of when a thought first arises, it's called a nen. And it's almost like the bodily feeling before the actual thought takes form. And if you can catch it then, then you know time looks very different. You could say that someone who is a walking embodiment of forgiveness and the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, they've just shortened the experience of forgiveness to a millisecond. Yeah. It arises in their body and, and it's gone. Or it doesn't even get time to arise in their body and it's gone. You know, there's no one to forgive. 
and no one uh, who needs forgiving, uh, no one who needs to forgive. Yeah. Um, but not all of us, you know, are in that place. We take our, we have to explore the body. We have to find how we've been hurt. We have to be compassionate with ourselves and with the world. And sometimes part of the recovery from forgiveness is just to hermetically seal yourself off from the world again. Just to give yourself time to go into, to create a perimeter of protection for a while. And the great tragedy of human life is where you forget that you created that wall and that perimeter uh, so that you could heal yourself. And when the wall and the perimeter becomes your identity and you refuse to come out again, well, all of us have these walls and perimeters actually, that's like an inner defense budget. Yeah, it's like tiny shields all over the place. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, so this is where a sense of humor about yourself is good to know where, where your defensive shields are and to say, oh, there I go again, yeah. And uh, perhaps even more to the point to look at where we attack as a preemptive form of defense. To say, oh, and there I go again also, yes. What, I, what I'm, am I afraid of in this person? And where, where none of us really understand how much fear directs our character and our willingness or unwillingness to join a conversation. Often the fear is covered over in milliseconds. We have a justification for it, a long rehearsed justification for why we are attacking this person. <laughs> Whereas one other option is to invite fear to this, you know, round table that you are in control of and to crown it and to ask it, what have you got? What's your report, fear? Exactly. What What are you trying to tell me? Because yeah. when you, you know, don't listen to it and you ignore it and gag it, uh, it will be no friend to you and it won't uh, want to help. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that round table is the body, of course. It's the physical body to be able to feel your fears fully. So that, uh, uh, I mean, Heraclitus, the great Greek historian and philosopher, used this word enantiodromia which is the kind of phenomena in nature whereby something that becomes fully itself immediately starts to blossom into something else. And so the understanding is that when you, you feel your fear to its fullest extent, it, you immediately start to give it seasonality. It starts to move. It starts to blossom into something else. I mean, this seems to be one of the phenomena in the use of MDMA, of ecstasy, you know, with the traumatized veterans. It gives them such a context of love that they're able to understand why, why they've been so fearful and defensive, what happened to them, you know, and gives them a bridge of compassion back to themselves, but also to others in the world who have felt the same experience. Mm -hmm. I first heard your voice on the meditation app Waking Up by Sam Harris. Mm, and uh, yes. I first discovered that app as I was going through a divorce, uh, which was very sudden, and later found out that there was uh, an ongoing affair. And um, yes. 
So having that app and figuring out how meditation fits in my life, what it does for me, um, because I, I get why people discover meditation for themselves in times of crisis, because you realize that your mind is now supercharged in the most uh, agonizing ways. And there's got to be a way to center yourself as this chaos is swirling around you, right? And so yeah, I'd like to hear from you what meditation has to do with forgiveness for you. Yes. Well, I mean, in the case of, you know, a broken heart and love, uh, what we're experiencing at a very deep level is not being wanted uh, in the way we want to be wanted. Part of meditation is, is undoing the voices on the periphery that say you're not wanted yeah. and dropping down to this physical experience uh, whereby the, you find the world, every part of the natural world is coming to meet you every second and acts as if it needs you. Yeah. Uh, this birdsong can't be heard without your ears. Yeah. Uh, this spring day can't be felt without your body being here. Yeah. And you could say that uh, the world can't feel its full, bitter and beautiful cry without your grief. Yeah. One of the strange understandings that comes through contemplation, yeah, which is really, a, it's, a, it's a very mild word for a, very, a state of very, very fierce attention and intentionality. Uh, but I feel that one of the things you, you start to understand is quite miraculous is that we're the only part of the universe that can be disappointed. Yeah. I don't know why I find that funny, but it's exactly. kind yeah. of sweet. <laughs> I have another essay, another essay on disappointment, actually. <laughs> That'll be another show. Great. We'll have you back. Be helpful, yes. <laughs> And um, we're the only part of creation that can have our heart broken uh, and have a, a conscious knowledge of it. Yeah. I mean, animals have their heart broken on a kind of temporary way, but they, they can't contextualize it the way a human being can and extend it to an understanding of the heartbreak of others. Yeah. Um, we, I may be proven wrong on that in future generations, but... Uh, uh, whether or not there are a few animals that can do that or not, um, it's quite a unique experience. Yeah. So you start to understand that your own heartbreak is a kind of miraculous invitation into the very wellsprings of your own identity. They tell you what you wanted in your life and what you were disappointed by. And they really ask you to be brave in a way. Your heartbreak asks you to be brave in understanding that there's no courageous path a human being can take without having their heart broken. And uh, it's the willingness to do that that allows you to fall in love again, yeah. uh, or allows you to pick up your pen again when you were told you couldn't write, yeah. or when you, fail, you felt you failed. Yeah. There's no sincere path you can take uh, without having that imaginative organ atomized and broken apart. So we stop looking for a path where I'll be insulated against 
pain and grief and disappointment. And so you're willing to give yourself, there's lovely lines by Patrick Cavanaugh. He was the working class poet that followed the aristocratic poet, William Butler Yeats in the Irish tradition. And he said, me, I will throw away me sufficient to the day. The sticky self that clings adhesions on the wings to love and adventure. To go on the grand tour, a man must be free from self-necessity. And if he'd been alive today, would he equally have said a woman must be free from self-necessity? Me, I will throw away me sufficient to the day. The sticky self that clings adhesions on the wings to love and adventure. The sticky self that clings adhesions on the wings to love and adventure. To go on the grand tour, a man must be free from self-necessity. You know, the grand tour in the 18th century was an aristocratic phenomena. It was the sons, really just the sons of the gentry who went off through Europe and not only saw all the great artworks and ruins of Europe, but were introduced to the great minds of Europe. You went to see Goethe and you sat in his parlor and drank his tea or his wine and you entered into a conversation. You went to see Rousseau. You You went to see Madame Style in in Paris. Here is Kavanagh, poor as a church mouse in the back streets of Dublin, ennobling himself. Yeah? Mm. Me, I will throw away. You know, whatever, whoever, whatever name you've given yourself, it's too small for you. Yeah? And especially the name, you know, someone who was being victimized, yeah? which is not to undermine or to belittle when we are a victim of other people's violence or circumstance. The understanding though is that your way out of that trauma is through creating a greater context than the one who was victimized. Uh, While never forgetting what occurred in a a sense. Because that's going to be your bridge of compassion for others. But the ability to give away the names you've given yourself and then the names you've given others too, because you realize if I'm imprisoning myself through this name, I'm certainly imprisoning others. Yeah. I imprison my wife simply through the overuse of the word wife. Yeah. I imprison my son or daughter through overuse of the word son or daughter. And certainly in our understanding now of gender fluidity, you know, we have to be very careful about how we name children who are growing into the world these days. We need a more Shakespearean understanding of, of gender. Huh? And uh, so what names have I given myself that are too small for me? Uh, another step of maturity is saying, what names do I unconsciously give myself that I've never spoken out loud, but imprison me just as much? I mean, we can move to the next stage where we understand how <clears throat> how many promises we've made in the world based on fear and difficulty rather than a generous and brave way for we're promise-making animals. We have lots of advice in our religious literature about the making and keeping of promises. But it's really remarkable to think about how human beings often have to break promises in order to move on. 
And uh, many of the promises you have to break, you've made unconsciously, actually. And uh, I'm thinking now, for instance, the promises you make over a cradle, over a new child, whether it's your child or whether it, whether you're an auntie or an uncle or a close friend, the promises you make over the cradle of an infant are always ones of complete and utter protection. Nothing will happen to you on my watch while I'm here, whether I'm a godfather or whether I'm the actual father or, or the mother or an auntie or... But if you kept to that promise when they were 14 or 15, you would ruin their lives. Yeah. So the original promise based on love, but the seasonality has moved on. But quite often we've been telling ourselves that being a good mother and a good father or a, a good parent of any kind means utter enfoldment, insulation and protection here. Yeah. And you wonder why, why your child starts to dislike you. Yeah. You've got a promise that was sacred in the beginning that now needs to be let go. Me, I will throw away me sufficient to the day. To be sufficient to the day in the poetic tradition, this is a great tragedy. <laughs> just, just to get your to-do list done, you know, just to keep yourself in the manner to which you want to be accustomed just to keep reinforcing the names. Me, I will throw away me sufficient. The sticky self that clings adhesions on the wings to love and adventure. To go on the grand tour, a man, a woman must be free from self-necessity. Self-necessity. What am I doing just out of rote? Yeah? I'm often keeping... This is a piece I wrote, actually, about... Uh, I wrote it uh, after an hour in one of my favorite architectural structures in the world, which is a fishing house in an old monastic ruin over the River Kong on the edge of Connemara in Western Ireland. It's a beautiful cottage <clears throat> with a fireplace in one end, probably built in the 13th century or so, or 12th century, uh, with a slot in the floor. And the monks used to drop a net down or lines and uh, apparently they had a bell attached to the net. And when the bell rang, uh, you hopefully had a salmon or a trout. Yeah. And uh, the roof has fallen away on this structure now and the wall that faces downstream has fallen away. So here you've got this cottage on, built on stone piers with the wall that faces downstream. If you get in there by yourself of a winter's day like I did, undisturbed, you're really being asked to contemplate everything that's already left. You know. For instance, when we, we look at a river and then say its name, we're actually naming something that's already gone. <laughs> By its nature, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what are you calling? What are you calling? What are that? you calling the wind? My breath. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's useful as a certain kind of reference, so you can all know what you're talking about, that piece of water, that, but actually... At one level, it's a very inaccurate description of what. So when you're looking downstream, you're looking at everything that's gone. And I was in a relationship at the time that I needed to let go of in the way I was holding it. And I suddenly, in an hour, you know, 45 minutes or an hour I had been there, realized how tightly I was holding to a promise that I'd never actually said out loud. But it was holding me as if, as if I had shouted it from the rooftops. And I said, how many promises am I? 
have I made that I don't even know about? And how do you break a promise that you need to break? So this is a little manual about how to break a promise and written in this architecture. <clears throat> to break a promise, make a place of prayer. Whether you're religious or not, you know, you don't do this lightly. This is about spaciousness going deep. Yeah? You don't break a promise lightly. You have to understand where it came from. And to break a promise, make a place of prayer. No fuss now. Just lean into the white brightness and say what you needed to say all along. Nothing too much. Words as simple and as yours and as heard as the bird song above your head or the water running gently beside you. Let your words join one to another the way stone nestles on stone, the way water just leaves and goes to the sea, the way your promise breathes and belongs with every other promise you ever made. Now let them go on. Let your words have their own life without you. Let the promise go with the river. Stand up, walk away, have faith. There was a strangely practical ring to that last line, uh, stand up, walk away, um, have faith. Because as I walked away, I said, you know, if that promise is still real, it'll come back to me. I won't be able to let go of it, actually. Just because of the way we're made, it will, it will actually. But almost always, if you've got yourself into a medieval Irish monastic structure for 45 minutes, and you've been there, almost always, you probably need to let go of the promise. <laughs> and um, in the cold, if you've, you know, if you've sat in the cold for so long, there's something going on that needs to be moved. Yeah. Um, but you, you do, you know, you can be merciful and, and have a go at letting go of a promise because you can be sure that if it's still real, it will come back to you and you can take it on again. But almost always you will, you will take it on in a more merciful way, in a more contextualized way, and in a way that's appropriate to the season you're in now in your life. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, I mean, when marriages break apart, it's interesting to think that you, the original promise you made is, has never been touched, actually. You just hung it on on certain named possibilities. <laughs> One or two, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which you might have taken a little <laughs> too seriously at times. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to me, huh? Yeah. But what's tragic is when you let go of the promise that meant so much to you that you made. Um what you were looking for when you made that promise. And the necessary innocence that's needed for a better future for yourself in that person who made the promise, who's still, still there. Yeah. David White, thank you so much for this, for talking with me. Lovely. My pleasure. Kayon. David White is a philosopher, poet, speaker, and author of Consolations, the solace, nourishment, and underlying meaning of everyday words. You can experience more of his work at David White, that's W-H-Y-T-E, dot com. 
And check out that full episode on forgiveness, featuring perspectives from our audacious listeners. And you'll hear from a pastor whose brother spent her entire million-dollar inheritance. And listen to a conversation about forgiveness that I had with a man who needed a full face transplant after getting hit by a drunk driver. That's right here in your podcast feed or at ctpublic.org slash audacious. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on forgiveness for another installment of this show. Send a voice memo or video to me on the social medias at Kyone Wolf or email audacious at ctpublic.org. Our show is produced at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski, with help from our interns Michaela Savitt and Sarah Gasparato. Thank you so very much for listening. Thank you.